Hello children. This is Enid Blyton, your storyteller. Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy. I'm here with Steve Walsh. Hello. Hello, hooray. What a nice day for Enid Blyton. Enid Blyton. We will be talking about the beloved children's author from East Dulwich shortly. First of all, Steve, I'm looking for a new job. Actively. Actively, yeah. And I don't know what, what the makeup of our audience is. I'm I'm guessing mature students and the unemployed. Booksellers. Some booksellers in there. Some booksellers, yeah, some low level guys. But if someone's listening who's in a position to give me a decent paid job, man, I should take this opportunity to let them know that I'm Absolutely. available for employment, yeah. you know. I can write, yeah. Recently wrote for the Huffington Post, written for ITV dot com. My nice pay invoices, Steve. You've written for STV dot com. Exactly. Ordering, yeah. I cover the finance side, all the admin, that's fine. Film tables, you can do good film tables. Hello, Jack speaking. Excellent telephone manner. <laughs> you didn't even swear. That is amazing. So, but yeah, currently working in a school, primary school, and uh, you know, part of the job is not that great, but other parts of it are great. I mean, I love working with kids. Not even working with. Them. I don't work with the kids. They're just there. Yeah. Um, and that's great. This is not the reason I want to leave, Steve. But the other day, I was eating dinner with the. Uh, reception children I've probably told you this already and uh, I get a free school lunch if I eat it with the kids if I sit there for half an hour eating with them what I didn't uh, bargain on was a five year old coughing a piece of food directly into my eye <laughs> literally into my eyeball what food was it? not that matters I don't know not... I can't remember we regurgitated food right but yeah he's telling me dad bought him a Ben 10 game and just literally just coughed it into my eyeball but like I thought that was bad and I mentioned it in the staff room and Miss Partridge said that I think last year a kid in her class vomited on her foot and she was wearing sandals at the time so perils of the job it's less than ideal you uh, tutor some children every couple of weeks I do yeah oh we mentioned uh, in the past didn't we Um, one of them first act as mayor get a golden toilet get a golden toilet Absolutely. The other day, I asked you uh, what football team you support, to which you said... I said West Ham. And he goes, still. <laughs> I love that. He also he followed up with, uh, he said, uh, you got Scott Parker, though, haven't you? I said, no, he went to Spurs. He went, oh, right, so you haven't got any good players. <laughs> I was like, no, I suppose not. I suppose we haven't. I don't imagine there's anyone listening who hasn't heard of Ian Blyton, but people do have gaps in their knowledge. Absolutely. Hugely popular children's author. She's been dead for over 40 years and still sells... Many books a year. I thought I had that many books she sell. In huge numbers. In the last decade, she sold 8 million books in the UK. Books translated into 90 different languages and in total, 600 million copies plus. It's not bad, is it? It puts her right up there, doesn't it? But she was a prolific author. That's part of uh, the explanation. I mean, obviously... Uh, Do you know how many books she published? I don't know how many titles overall. 753 in 45 years. That is amazing. 
sort of amazes it was ridiculous <laughs> well yeah I read somewhere it was an average of 16 books a year which is you do the math yeah yeah she was born in 1897 on Lordship Lane in East Dulwich there's a blue plaque on the building it's um, way up the hill isn't it yeah it's, Lordship it's, Lane it's, just it's goes by, off forever it's by the plough it's by the plough it's opposite the plough by Dulwich Library yeah the building's got a blue plaque on it um, but it's a hardware store now which makes it look old you've got this like display of ladders and yeah if you put it on the side of a cottage it's one thing yeah it just looks and I'm sure at the time when she was born there wasn't a selection of uh, iron gates and tin baths outside there might have been I don't know but um, yeah it's uh, I'd say a, a massive uh, hardware shop now and I think she only lived there for a short while before she moved to uh more rural location. Yeah, Beckenham. Yeah. Which would have been uh, properly rural at that time as well. Yeah, she wrote, as, as we said, lots of books, lots of different uh, types of books as well. The Noddy series, probably the most... Noddy. Distinctive. Big Ears. Noddy Big Ears. Gollywogs, which we'll come on to more, later. More on Gollywogs later. Yeah. Stay tuned to that. Um, but then she had other sort of series that she would that became sort of formulaic so you had the adventure stories with the famous five and the secret seven and as a kid i was like obsessed with these books and i loved them but i could never understand why one book was a famous five book and one book was a secret seven book i didn't understand why some of these books needed two more or fewer characters surely you just find these smugglers in a cave Mm. as a child my mum read amelia jane i think so I've got memories of one of those being read Amelia an Amelia Jane book, and also one uh, the Secret Island or the Secret Mountain, or both. Yeah, that one's a bad one. Yeah, so it's just it's it was a huge kind of presence in everyone's childhood. Oh, yeah. My mum, uh, we joined like this Enid Blyton book club, so you get these hardback editions of all the famous Five and Secret Seven books. Um, and my sister used to get. The Mallory Towers and St Clair's books, which were another sort of strand of things here, which were essentially boarding school stories. Um, and it would just be the girls in the boarding school having midnight feasts and uh, various adventures. It's knocking out a book every three weeks, it's extraordinary, isn't but it? But this is the thing, if you've got, once you've got your thing of, right, I've got the adventure books, which is the famous five and the secret seven, I've got the, you know, boarding school books, Mallory Towers and St Clair's, she did the wishing chair and magic faraway tree stories, which were again essentially very similar things the wishing chair the chair would take people over adventures the enchanted wood they'd go to the faraway tree and they'd go to different places and have different adventures so I guess once you've got and reading the books particularly reading them now as, as an adult you sort of think yeah they're, they're so formulaic they're so bland that a lot of the things are interchangeable you could just sort of like knock it out once you've got the formula I'd always assumed that she was well regarded critically being so phenomenally popular, yeah, I assumed that you know she was considered to be good. Obviously, with children's books, you know, occasionally people try and make out that writing children's books is as valid as writing adults' books. Obviously, it isn't because <laughs> children are just stupid adults, aren't they? Essentially, <laughs> but within that, you know, she's not. I, just, I was sort of uh, ended up sort of browsing the internet, having a look and. Just, it's not regard, well regarded at all. Well, is the it? thing is, it's not even like it's a, a modern backlash. You know, there is, there were you know library bands, uh, 
more recently uh, on the basis that there were contents in the books that would be regarded as racist, sexist, and classist. You know, you had... For example, uh, George was as black as a nigger with soot. Yeah, that was the thing. At that time... They've changed that. They've changed that. They've changed that, yeah. And there'd be a lot of references. They changed it to coloured. <laughs> peach. He wasn't, he wasn't, George was no longer peach. Um, yeah, there's a lot of references as well to uh, children being spanked as well. Uh, well, in which, the Magic Faraway Tree, um, Dame Slap. Yeah. The name was changed to Dame Snap. Yeah. And rather than uh, beat the children, she just shouted them. Mm. But... Throughout all the books, uh, the Noddy books and whatnot, there was constant references to the children being spanked. So they've they've sort of updated those and changed it to scolded uh, when in a lot of the books. Um, the charges of sexism, you know, the, the girls in the book. You had uh, George in the Famous Five who was a tomboy, but essentially it's made very clear that the girls have very defined roles within the group, and that is food preparation any cleaning that needs to be done, any sort of, you know, classic women's roles would fall to the girls within the groups. And uh, classist, you know, was a, a charge that laid the door. You know, the, the heroes of these books are clearly well-to-do middle-class kids. And the villains were invariably horrible, ill-educated working-class people. Or foreigners. Or foreigners, yeah. Foreigners also didn't fare well. So yeah, you've got this sort of modern backlash against the books on the basis that they're quite there's some offensive views in there, uh, and it is it's a, you know a product of its time as well. But the interesting thing is, even within her own the lifetime of her career, uh, and I never realised this, there was there was a, a number of well the most famous one there was a, a, a ban on her at the BBC, based purely on the quality of the work. Yeah, you saw her as a mediocre writer at best. Have you seen it. the internal? Uh, yeah, well, they were like they describe her as uh, she's just very such very small beer, <laughs> and obviously you're a big fan of small beer, Steve. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, she would write quite regular letters to the BBC pleading yeah, to be so given programs because well, it was the old cachet for a writer to be. And the thing is, it was a time when this is what the BBC would do: they would get in established writers and get them to talk about. Books, but they didn't want anything to do with Ian Blyton because they just didn't regard her as a good writer. Yeah, there's. I was reading. Um, where is that reading it? Yeah, she wrote a letter to the. Uh, well, her, first of all, her husband uh, Hugh Pollock wrote a letter to the BBC asking how she would go about getting herself broadcast, and she wrote this letter to the uh, Children's Hour director. And it's a bit like that Michael Owen brochure where he's sending around going, you know, <laughs> I used to be I used to play for England and like, I can run this fast. <laughs> Like she's sort of in the letters talking about how she's a best-selling author, and it's like, yeah, we know who you are. And it's odd, isn't it? It's almost like that success wasn't enough for her. She wanted to be accepted by the establishment. She wanted the BBC to give her a stamp for approval and go, yeah, you are good. But they wouldn't do it. They just refused to acknowledge her as a good writer. Jean Sutcliffe of the BBC Schools Department wrote a memo to the editor of Women's Hour. But I think explaining why they weren't putting Blighton on. Have you read this? No, no. She describes her as a competent and tenacious second rater. Um, and she says that her work is better than the mass of similar material on the market. She makes the case that children loving her books is no defence at all. <laughs> because uh, all is grist that comes to their mill. Which is a charge I've leveled at you many times. Many Dave. times, many times. And rightly so. 
She, she goes on to say, no writer of real merit could possibly go on believing that this mediocre material is of the highest quality and turn it out in such incredible quantities. Her capacity to do so amounts to genius, and it is here that she has beaten everyone to a standstill. Anyone else would have died of boredom years ago. <laughs> the danger lies when adults, both parents and teachers, accept her commercial success as the badge of literary quality and are satisfied if nothing but in the blind books are available for their children. And there was another memo she submitted... I suppose like a radio play or something or a short story maybe to be dramatised to the BBC. And some intern, not intern, but some lower employee there wrote a report on it saying this is not really good enough, very little happens, the dialogue's stilted and long-winded, it's not strong enough. And that was the person who said that she was such a very small bear. Yeah, I was thinking she was prolific, but just never uh, a great writer. And that's fine if, you know, there's a, a famous story about Geoffrey Archer when he decided to become a writer. Uh, and it was essentially because he was bankrupt. And people said, what do you plan to do now? He said, I'm going to become a best-selling novelist. And he did. He wrote books and sold, you know, tons of copies and made a lot of money. And then people started going, uh, your books aren't very good. And someone challenged him open that one and said, uh, yeah, you sell loads, but uh, they're not very good books, are they? And he said, I told everyone... I was going to become a best-selling novelist. I didn't say I was going to be a good one. Mission accomplished, isn't it? That's what you're aiming for. But that was the thing. You wait till I'm there. <laughs> but she she clearly... That wasn't enough for her. She's selling these, you know, tons of copies, but wants to be accepted as well. She never got any particular prizes in her life. She never awarded any sort of literary you know, medals or badges, but, you know, the BBC shunned her. She was apparently instrumental in putting her signature on the cover of all the books and creating her own celebrity, really. So the creating books, a brand. Yeah, a brand, yeah. Which you wouldn't consider at the time. but No, way ahead of her time in that regard. Well, that's the thing. What comes out of the, the what you learn about her as a person is that she was a very selfish egotist from the sound of things. I mean, the story of the breakdown of her marriage was essentially that she was having an affair and wanted to divorce her husband to remarry the man she's having an affair with and told the husband that if he admitted infidelity and he wasn't having an affair <laughs> but she said if you don't admit infidelity I won't give you access to the girls when we get divorced so this sap signs off on charges of infidelity they divorce, and at that point, she refuses him access to his daughters. He ends up uh, bankrupt and an alcoholic and dies uh, a short time afterwards. Charming. Lovely, you know. Uh, one of her daughters wrote uh, quite a damning account of growing up as Enid Blyton's daughter and said, you know, she said, uh, you know, she was a woman I feared as a, as a child and pitied as an adult. She just said that she was selfish but to be fair and to give balance to it the other daughter wrote a foreword to the book which she learned it was fine you know growing up as Ian Blyton's daughter was not a problem at all apparently they weren't allowed to talk to the uh, the servants well this as I say this is what comes across in the books Ian Blyton had very definite ideas about people's places and roles so we decided to read a book for the show Steve initially The Magic Faraway Tree it was my choice uh, for the Magic Faraway because it's a book I read a lot as a child and I loved it. It was probably 
my favourite book. Until the age of 19. <laughs> Until about five or six years ago. When I finally read yeah, the Yeah, the age of 19. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, just as a kid. I, you know, I loved uh, Enid Blyton's books. Because <laughs> the thing was, uh, I was in the same way that she was a prolific writer, but not a good one. I was a voracious reader, but not a picky one. So the fact that you had this woman, and I was like, right, there's 50 books here. I'm so pretty much the match made getting. in East Dulwich, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you used to work on North Street Lane, didn't you? So. I did used to work on North Street Lane, yeah, not too far away. But this would have been this would have been in Camberwell. Uh, and I said, my mum signed us up for the Ian Blyton Book Club, so every month you'd get... Uh, 16 books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, they, they sent you... Um, it was one sort of hardback a month. I can't remember if it was just one story or like double bills. But um, yeah, they yeah obviously looking back on now quite cheaply made uh, little hardbacks, but like faux leather covers. I thought they were brilliant as books and to say as as stories as well. And the Magic Faraway Tree um, was one that always stuck with me. I read uh, twenty pages, man. Yeah, like we were going to read it for the show, you know, discuss it a bit. But I didn't get into this, Steve, into this business to read rubbish books. Sit there for two hours knocking out some. Well, the the like idea sauce, was saucepan face and moon man. Not even the right names, is it? Just close enough. <laughs> um, the idea was that it would be start of a strand where we did uh, the South London Book Club and that. Yeah, man, then we could start up at some point, couldn't it? But not with in Blighton. But the thing is, the thing about a book club is sometimes you read bad books, sometimes you read books you don't enjoy, and that's where the discussion comes from, isn't it? I read this book in an hour on the bus. This is not because it's, it's a kids' book, as you say, and it's and as, uh, as we've discussed earlier, it's tedious. A, yeah, it is tedious. Yeah. Just they, like within the first two pages, they're up, they're going to this tree where you know branches open up, and there's a man in there, you know, and he's a little red man, and he's washing his his armpits in the sink. The angry and, pigs. Know, yeah. Then they close close the window. Then they move on to the next one. It's the same thing. Is it build to something? No, not really. No, that's the thing. Is it's, it episodic? It's kind of. I mean, the, the 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 premise of the story is it's a second in a, in a trilogy, and the idea is that there are three children. This is another good example of uh, the updating that the books the books got. There were is a f- uh, three brothers and sisters that live in a cottage nearby with their parents, and they live near what what is the enchanted woods. And in the enchanted wood, you've got the magic railway tree. The three kids in the original book are Joe who's a boy, but name spelt J-O. Uh, his sister, Bessie, and their other sister, Fanny. To update the books, later on, Joe gets an E on his name, just to sort of modernise Yeah, no need for the ambiguity, yeah. I suppose. Bessie is changed to Beth, and Fanny is turned to Franny, because they don't want... Because of the connotations. There's the connotations, word. and also their cousin comes to stay, and he's called Dick. And I think they were worried about Dick and Fanny running around in the woods. So he mm. becomes Rick, she becomes Franny, Bessie becomes Yeah, I, I did find the name Rick to be a bit of an odd one. It's a, it, that, and that, but that's the thing, that, that just becomes... It's no good going, Bessie's a bit incongruous, but we'll put Rick running around a forest in the 40s. Just wouldn't happen, would it? There were no Ricks in England in the 40s. And no, there's, to be fair, there's nothing that particularly plays that time, but that's when it was released and clearly when it was set. Um, yeah, so you have these three kids who live near... This magic faraway tree, uh, they climb to the top of the tree. People live in the tree. Uh, Moonface, Silky the Fairy, 
Saucepan Man, Mr. What's His Name, Ugh. Dame Wash a lot, mm. The Angry Pixie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, they, and when they climb to the top of the tree, at the top of the tree, various lands appear. And they can go up and visit the lands, but they have to get back down to the tree before the land moves on, otherwise they're stuck there. And it's not as back. exciting as it sounds. It's a great premise, and I think as a kid that was what really appealed to me. I loved the idea of the limitless appeal of, of what could be at the top of the tree. At the same time, I was reading like DC Comics, and in that you had a multiverse. You had this idea that there were slightly different Earths that had slightly different versions of Superman and Batman. So this whole idea of multiple worlds or alternate worlds, uh, I think is ripe for sort of kids' books. It's great stuff. But yeah, as you say, it's not particularly exciting. Like Every time they go up the tree... Dame Washlot's doing a washing and she throws her water, the dirty laundry water, down the tree and either they all dodge it or someone gets soaked. Hmm. And every, every time... And, but it does, you're right, it doesn't serve the story or anything. It's just this moment where someone gets soaked. And I think you're supposed to be sort of tickled by it. Um, and eventually what happens is across the book, the kids go up and down the tree. Um, the closest you get... And go to various lands or various have them, but they get a bit trapped or someone gets you know, every time they go to one of these lands something goes wrong. Someone ends up deformed or stuck. And I suppose the big sort of set piece towards the end is when uh characters come from another land and they try and move into the faraway tree and they try they sort of trap Sourceman Man and Moonface in uh, a tunnel in the tree. And try and move into their places, but then the kids sort of sort it out so they go back to the proper land. That's as close as you get to any sort of major story. So it's not this is the thing. It's not. It's no, not great. Don't buy it. Don't read it to kids. But I did think there was some interesting subtext in there when you consider when the book was released, which was 1943. So it's 1943. England's at war. You've got. Mass evacuations to the countryside. Who do you think you are kidding, Mr. Hitler? Got arrows diving around mainland Europe, battling it out. And in this in this book, you've got the three kids from the first book, but their cousin Rick comes from the city to stay in the country. And there's no mention of the war. There's no mention of the time. I mentioned it once. I think I'll go away with it. <laughs> But I think it's got to be more than a coincidence that this book is about this boy coming to the country from the city at this point. The interesting thing as well then is he, in terms of things going wrong in the book, it tends to be mostly his fault. Rick's quite headstrong. He doesn't really understand how Mm. these darn evacuees. This is the thing. He he keeps he keeps sort of like you know effectively you know you know traditionally in the country it'd be the equivalent of leaving the gate to the field open the, the, the cows getting out he doesn't understand the ways of the world around him and you do get the feeling and possibly I'm giving Eden Blotten too much credit here for the idea that she's putting subtext into these books but it, does, it did feel to me like it was almost like four kids at the time to go you're going to get these kids coming from the com- uh, from the city to the country they're not really going to understand what's going on they're going to cause problems but there's no in the book it's made very clear that Rick's trying his best. He just, you know, doesn't really understand what's going on. So it's, I think it's a plea for tolerance for the evacuees. But at the same time, it's also almost like a, a warning to the evacuees. Like, if you go to the country, things are going to be different. And again, it's... There will be pixies living up trees. <laughs> Don't forget that. But then, even within the other parts of the book as well, and this, you know, is a theme that runs throughout all the Union Blind books, but there's an obsession with food. 
There's an obsession with food. I can relate to that. But particularly feasts as well. Food to excess. The lands that they go to all tend to be places where there's like sweets everywhere or there's cakes everywhere or there's just food everywhere. So they can go up there and just gorge. And again, in 1943, you've got rationing at its peak. You've got, you know, sugar and chocolate being weighed out in very small portions. And that's kind of... So this fantasy of there being a magical tree in the country that you can climb to the top of and eat your fill would have been, you know, wonderful uh, for the kids at the time. And, and within that as well, there's other aspects. Where, as I say, there's a huge thing about the kids' clothes getting soaked by Dane Washerlot's laundry water. And they sort of go to these lands and get into various scrapes and end up tearing trousers or ruining shirts. And there's a constant theme of them going back to their house with damp or ruined clothes. And the mum sort of going, they're your only clothes. Don't ruin them. Yeah. And again, that would have been very much a thing at the time. Not just in terms of, of wartime, but the, you know, the idea of kids having you know, ten pairs of trousers just didn't happen. You had, you had your, your trousers that you wore and then you had your Sunday best. That was Those, those were your options. So if you did ruin your trousers, you would have had to mend them. So there's a, a theme there about mending and taking care of your clothes. There's a whole thing about the kids doing lots of chores and particularly working in the garden. That's mentioned a lot in terms of bringing in carrots from the garden and, and growing onions. There's a whole sort of thing about self-sufficiency. So as I say, I, I might be reading too much into it, but it did feel to me very much that there was... As I say, nothing's explicitly mentioned. There's no mention of the war or evacuation, but it, it did feel like it was almost like a, a pamphlet, sort of saying, you know, if you go to the country, life will be different. There'll be more emphasis on growing your own food I mean, more emphasis on taking care of your own clothes more emphasis on you helping out less food there probably won't be a magic tree at the end of the road but if there is be careful some of these pixies are angry so better than uh, she's underrated just says Dave I'm using one book as an example but then um, looking in terms of cultural impact uh, the magic faraway tree ends up featuring pretty uh, strongly in V for Vendetta, the Alan Moore comic. Oh, does it? Yeah, yeah. There's like a key scene where uh, V, who takes Evie under his wing, um, and sort of tries to replicate an idyllic childhood for her for a short time and makes a point of reading a bedtime story to her. And the bedtime story he reads to her is The Magic Faraway Tree. And one of the chapters in the book is called The Land of Do As You Please which is one of the lands Ooh. from the book so as I say Enid Blyton isn't a brilliant writer and this isn't a brilliant Alan book Moore writer. but there's I think there's with this particular book there's more to it and it might just be me reading too much into it and just having a soft spot for it because I loved it as a child and it's turned up later in another book that I love well the, you know if you were to name the five biggest selling books over your X amount of years of Warstones. You know, Da Vinci Code, Harry Potter. They're both rubbish, aren't they? Yeah, the same as anything, isn't it? The best-selling newspaper in the country every day is The Sun. Yeah, it's Which everyone knows... By illiterates, for illiterates. ...is the worst newspaper. And the thing is, not even in terms of quality, because in terms of quality, it's definitely the worst. But also, it's... uh, you know, morally bankrupt, isn't it? You know, you can talk about uh, the dubious morality of uh, page-free girls. 
they've tried to justify it more recently by having them speak out on social issues. I don't know how much that, that softens the blow in terms of what they're actually doing with the, the piece. But, you know, you can... I, I was reading a, a book recently that talked about closing the print in the 80s and how terrible Murdoch was. And the thing that struck me is, well, I mean, you know, I'll always uh, back striking workers against their employers. Don't buy the sun, innit, as but, well. But the thing, was, the thing was, when these people were working for Rupert Murdoch, it seemed only when Rupert Murdoch fired them did they go, this guy's a, an absolute <laughs> bastard. And I was like, yeah, but he was never, when was he nice? Because like, this was, like, closing the print was 84, 85, sort of after the minor strike. So they worked for the sun after they did the gotcha headline in 1982, that celebrated the sinking of a battleship that was retreating from British fire during the Falklands War. Yeah, I'm aware of it, yeah. Yeah. Quite a lot of people died, didn't they? Yeah. And, you know, they thought that was, uh, uh, you know, gotcha, exclamation mark. What a scorcher. <laughs> so, and, you know, and throughout the 80s, you know, backed Thatcher and the Tories. But it, and it just seems really odd that people were sort of going, yeah, this Rupert Murdoch character is a bit wrong. Yeah, it's a terrible newspaper, but sells by the packet load. You know, the news of the world had to close down because eventually it was found that they probably scuppered a murder investigation quite significantly. And everyone went, right, it's gone. And it's come back now on Sunday. And I made the point online when it came back. I was like, just call it the news of the world. Everyone thinks you're scum already. Changing its name doesn't help, does it? But this is the thing. What sells the best rarely is the best, is it? Or even, you know, is morally acceptable mm-hmm. at least with uh, Harry Potter no arm bones there. there's a lot of there's a huge blight and influence in Harry Potter as well if you look at what we've talked about today you can make a, a very a middle aged woman making up words you mean <laughs> well you I, I think you could make a, a very reasonable argument that if you combined uh, the characters from Noddy the boarding school setting of Mallory Towers and the kids getting involved in magic of the Magic Faraway Tree, you've pretty much got Harry Potter there, haven't you? Mm. But, you know, what's original in this world? Everything draws on... The, the major difference... Um, I mean, they're both badly written, I would say. <laughs> but Ian the Blunt doesn't even try, does she? No. Whereas, whereas with J.K. Rowling, it's maybe even worse than the fact that she tries. Well, I would argue J.K. Rowling... Exclaims Harry. You know, it's always... <laughs> they can't, she can't just put his head, can she? No. But there, there's some good, there's some good bits. I've only read Harry the first Potter. Harry Potter. But it was I've read all of them. The last ones in the Trossy yeah. is a terrible book, and it's uh, an amazing. It's amazing. I've, I've always maintained this. There's no way that book would be published in the form it's published in if it's not the last book in a hugely selling series. Because two thirds of it is clearly a woman that has writer's block who's trying to write her way through it. There's a huge, massive scene where they go camping. And clearly, she just doesn't know what to do with the story. So she's like, they're in the woods camping. And you're reading it going, really? They're still in the woods camping? And any other author who had a decent editor would have to face it. And go, there's too much camping. We're losing half of this. But who is telling J.K. Rowling in the last Harry Potter book what's going to go into it? The other part of it, of course, is that the publishers are sort of going, this book in its current form is 900 pages long do you know how big that's going to be on the shelf it's going to be brilliant <laughs> and that's what it comes down to you're producing literature by the pound at that point so you know there's good bits in Harry Potter books overall you know it's not brilliant is it but there's no there's no harm in it it's not uh, a racist 
sexist, classist diatribe. Away they go, shuffity shuffity. Goodbye, little train. Have a good time on your journey.